Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly movie podcast looking at IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Niall. And this week we're discussing Alfred Hitchcock's 1959 classic, North by Northwest, starring Cary Grant and written by George Le- by Ernest Lehman. So, when we talk about this movie, um, when I mentioned that we were doing this with Niall, Niall suggested to me that this is your favourite Alfred Hitchcock film. Yes. Of, of his entire body of work. Yeah, by quite a considerable distance. Interesting. Yeah. Is, is it... Do you, is it his best, or is it... No, technically speaking, Rope is his best. So Rope is the one where he shows the most technical skill. But, uh, and then, there, there's various different things. Like, Psycho has has different, and Vertigo as well. They each of The them two have, films that sandwich this one. Exactly. So this was in... He was in a vein of form at this particular moment, you know. But this... For me, this is the iconic one. This is the one that my formative Hitchcock memories are made from. Well, this is, that's been argued, it's the most Hitchcock of Hitchcock films, and that it's a bunch of, you can see Hitchcock's interests and Hitchcock's sort of, not even his themes, but the his aesthetic sort of bleeding through. You've got, it's a wrong man narrative, it's one of the four films he made with Cary Grant, it's got a MacGuffin in it that is completely pointless in terms of plot, but serves a nice way to generate sort of tension, run around. Is it about travelling? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, it, it is very much... If you were to make a Hitchcock movie, it would be the... And I think that was the briefing that himself and Ernest Lehman sort of decided on. Because they originally were working on a different project that fell through. And they liked working together so much that they decided they're going to write. They're going to make a movie together. I think the pitch was basically Hitchcock wanted to do the most Hitchcock film imaginable. Yeah, because it, like, it reminded me in parts of... Like, like parts of it reminded me of Marnie, about, about some of the kind of like traveling around and also the, 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 the kind of big house that looks like it was the same set. Yeah. Um, uh, from from Marnie, there was also um, it reminded me of Thirty Nine Steps was Hitchcock as well, yeah, wasn't both it? Yeah. of them, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So did it? Yeah, it it's it, it it was it was it was very much kind of it felt like it belonged in a series of movies, <laughs> yeah. like the, of a Hitchcock style, like yeah, Uvra, yeah, if you will, of exactly. an auteur. Um, yeah. Hitchcock being sort of the cornerstone of that. Theory. Like uh, if you could, you could, you could put them handily into like a box set. Almost ironically enough, this this doesn't actually appear in the Hitchcock box set because the rights yeah. to this, I believe, are owned by is it Warner Brothers? There's some sort of there are rights issues anyway where this is not actually available in the big Hitchcock box set. This was so the, this is MGM. This was MGM. Yeah. Keep in mind that, well, oh yeah, keep in mind MGM had to sell their back catalog, right? They did, yeah, because them and that is one of the reasons that United Artists went this, which is kind of funny considering how Bond esque this film is. That then MGM ended up buying Bond and or buying United Artists, and then they ended up being making this as Bond well. Style, yeah. yeah. So, but it is. It's the only. It's the one of the big <clears> ones that's missing from the the gigantic Hitchcock box set. That's why actually yeah. I have it in a separate uh, container because it was the the big one that's missing. And it is. It's one of the ones I think is considered quintessentially sort of Hitchcock. As as you pointed out, it comes in the middle of a trilogy of films, which are like obviously uh, Vertigo, then this, then Psycho, which are just any director will be lucky to have any film as good as any of the three of those in their in their body of work. And Hitchcock is basically doing them in, in the space of three years, one a year. It's just phenomenal. It really, really is. Yeah, he's he, by by making more than more than one great movie, he's taking jobs away from bad directors <laughs> who could easily <laughs> yeah. have done work. Exactly. Well, it is. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about this. Like, what is it about? So, what is it that grabs you about North by Northwest? What is it that's sort of like that you because you responded like instinctively to it being your favorite. Like, it's just. 
What was it in, in particular? It's... The, I think mostly it's the way that it's shot. So I, I, I respond to great cinematography more than I respond to anything else in a film. And this has that in spades. You have a thing where Cary Grant almost always appears on the left of the screen. You have a thing... Um, you have this you have those wide open vistas um with where the, the iconic scenes happen you know so the the bit with the with the crop duster is a beautiful flat sort of lawrence of arabia-esque um playground that to play on and then you have the other location shots which are all beautifully framed long shots then close-ups then long again he plays with with the frame very well in it and he plays very well with perspective and i mean even even the, in terms of the pacing the length of the shots i mean Truffaut hitchcock is obviously the, the one of the, the seminal sort of film texts and like Truffaut talks about one of the things that he loves about north by northwest is the way that uh hitchcock sort of holds the the, the shots just a little bit longer not even the sequences but the shots within the sequences in order to draw out the tension because everything goes on a little bit longer than it should and that's what kind of makes it more effective because this is a, a two hour 16 minute film yeah from which five seconds was cut really I that, that's it okay I did. so everything that was filmed was used or that that's amazing that's like so it was so perfectly constructed that because i know the studio were anxious about because the studio were anxious about it being two hours and 16 minutes because obviously that means less showings was, in a day was the five seconds uh, that were good carrie grant carrie grant giving a line and then oh damn it <laughs> oh sorry we'll start again it was a cu- like it was a cumulative two? Eight. no 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 there was <laughs> No, Question mark? No, in, there, there, no, from that perspective, yes, there was multiple takes, and so there, it's not like like rope was where it was two distinct yeah, things stitched together. Stitched together, but no, it's but in terms of when it went to the of, editor, yeah, the amount of recorded material that was you that they wanted to use, they cut eight feet of film, so or five seconds from it. That was it. Do we know what we're in those five seconds? I have no idea. <laughs> One of cinema's great mysteries. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, well, there was audio cut from this movie, definitely. Well, it was overdubbed because they wanted to take out that line. Yeah. The, the wonderful line from... Um, there's a great scene where they're travelling on the on the train and um, the the woman involved who is uh, Eve... Um, Eve but, Saint. Eve, Eve, yeah. Mary... Yeah, but who's playing a character who's also called Eve, Eve Kendall. Yeah. And basically she's... Uh, I love when they do that, just to make it easier. <laughs> to remember. Yeah. You can just call her Eve. It'll be grand. Yeah. It, it won't be like that bit in Gone Girl where we talk about how Ben Affleck is such a creep. And we're like, are we talking about the character or the actor? We're not entirely sure. Um, oh, now you're comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it was like I was really going after him like, on, that, on that episode and I trimmed it a little bit I may have trimmed it a little bit yeah. more than five seconds were cut from that particular conversation but there, there is it's, it's a fantastically well constructed film and what's remarkable about it is there's really no plot no it's a it's 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 a screwball comedy as a as a suspense narrative so it's it's all accidental happenings yeah, it, it's coincidences and contrivances and confusion sort of heaped on top of one another in a way that like ends up working very well as a film. Like if you were to try and summarize the events of everything that happens in North by Northwest, which don't worry, we're not going to do, it would sound ridiculous and absurd. And you'd be like, that would make a terrible movie. Which is what Cary Grant taught when he read the script. He couldn't, he didn't get it. Well, yeah, there's a famous story again. This is another one from, from Hitchcock Truffaut where it was um, where like there were three quarters of the way through filming. And Cary Grant was talking to Hitchcock saying, I, I don't understand it. 
which worked brilliantly because he's not meant to. Yeah, that was that was Hitchcock's <laughs> response as well. Hitchcock famously not liking actors that much, although he did say that Cary Grant was the only actor he ever loved. And he deliberately wanted him for this, despite Jimmy Stewart really yeah. wanting Jimmy Stewart this. really wanted this. He really went for it. And apparently Hitchcock was very, very, very relieved when um, the script ran over and Stewart had other obligations that he had to take up so they could recast it as Cary Grant. But he, he was able to make oh, a, no. form, a formal pitch to Jimmy Stewart and Jimmy Stewart had to reject it. Then. Yeah. Yeah, so. um, but apparently he was very, very relieved. I mean, it, it's interesting. Do you think this movie could have worked with Jimmy Stewart? Because it seems so very Cary Grant. Well, it would it would require a, a different type of Jimmy Stewart. The there's uh, Jimmy. Well, I mean, Jim, the man who knew too too little is kind of one. Yeah, uh, but you know, because it, the character of Roger Tarnhill, he's an, he's an asshole. He's you know he's just, <laughs> he's also an idiot. Um, he's an he's, asshole and an idiot. He's 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 very self absorbed, but he also. I think it works well with uh, Cary Grant because he looks like a. A puppet out of Thunderbirds, <laughs> kind of because um, well, he is so tanned. He looks yeah, like he looks yeah. like Richie. He doesn't and, look like he smells like Rich Mahogany. He looks like he is Rich Mahogany. Yeah, and and like his 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 suits uh, don't don't need to be changed. Yeah, well, because he's a puppet. Well, there's <laughs> the puppets uh, don't sweat. But there's that really great story. I think GQ. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But like GQ, a couple of years ago, wrote. North by Northwest from the perspective of Cary Grant's suit. Yeah. Um, but it is because it's... I was thinking a... about that the whole movie. I was thinking, how many days have passed? Yeah. They're, they're, and they're, they're, yeah. And yeah. all he needs to do is just get it pressed once and it's yeah. good. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we can really spoil this movie either. No, no. But we, we will we'll talk a bit more later on about the, the particulars. But it is... It's such... It's rich confectionery. Like, it doesn't really make any sense. Its plot is absurd. But it's... It's and in many ways, I think it's actually a testament to Hitchcock as a as a director. And I think maybe like when you talk about the auteur school and how the auteur school is rooted in this idea of the director as like the sole creative voice in a film, like I think that Hitchcock makes a very good argument because this is a movie that would not work. I can't imagine any other director making it work, and I can't imagine like it's a film that relies solely on the director's vision, even more than the script or the story or the source material. Well, and given that the director was the one who was the origin of the idea for the script as well. So he does, he's not just, he was collaborative in the making of, in the writing of it as well as being. So yeah, his stamp is all over it. Thornhill knows very little about what's going on and the audience knows even less. The audience um, knows more than him at certain at points. At certain which is a points, nice touch. they know more. At certain points, they know less. It, yeah. it's kind of yeah. They they do have a scene of exposition in the uh, middle of it, yeah, which is yeah, kind of a little it, bit awkward. It, it's it like for the slow pieces. people in the yeah. back. But, but I, it, it, it's 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 kind of it's 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 such a kind of perfunctory piece of exposition <laughs> because it doesn't really kind of. Um, it's just so that people can. Oh, it's been explained to me. Yeah, but has it? There, there is no, there is no plot hole. It's basically the scene that exists, so that there's nobody complaining about a possible plot hole. Yeah. Um, in that you could have. They, they could easily have introduced those characters later on. Yeah, or, when, or when, even when they eventually did, or even just yeah, just structured it so the reveal comes later in the film. Um, yeah. Although I do think that the reveal comes when it does, but we'll talk a bit more that, about that in the spoiler zone. Like Layman, um, which is interesting because we when we had everybody on uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about like the films that they wanted to put in this and what they thought was missing, um, Layman uh, also wrote the Sweet Smell of Success actually. Um, which he, yeah, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Like, yeah. I mean, the, the thing was Layman was brought on. Lehman was introduced to Hitchcock by Berman, the 
composer, so they want because he's and he felt that they would get on well, you know, and they did, and they really did. Because yeah. again, this this was just a hobby horse. This was like the thing they were doing because they couldn't make the thing they've been hired to do work. Uh, which is, is a great example. There are a couple of, of other examples of that in sort of in film and television history where it's just like two creative forces who are hanging out doing something and enjoy working together so often, so much, that they basically say, okay, well, look, we'll do something sort of fun on the side. I mean, you talked about how, like, uh, was it Burn After Reading, which is the Coen Brothers film that was basically written on alternating days with No Country for Old Men, it, just because they... It kind of shows that there was only half-assed the, the effort oh. going into the writing of that, now in fairness. I, I think it makes a nice contrast, though. It's so like one one world to the other but it is it's like a a goofing all there's an element of like north by northwest and here's here's an interesting thing like do I we, don't, like we're very we're very hard on people who make movies we, yeah. like, like kind of like well darren's work performance from january to to to, These, to march was 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 excellent but what i didn't enjoy was, was his output was April from April and June? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are the top like, two hundred and fifty films of all time. You, burn after you have burn to, after reading. No, that is, wouldn't is, be. But is, the Coens are not. capable of making films that are in that echelon. They so make tons all, of bad movies. They can't ex- be expected for all of them to. And and also, I don't think Burn After Reading is that bad. I'm like, I'm, with, it, I'm with Andrew on this. Yeah, like, like like not bad enough that we should come down on it because it's a Coen <laughs> Brothers movie and it should be better because they once made a better movie. They or right, right beforehand, at the same time, we're making a better movie. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> very, very hard on these. We, we like, really like, are. Like, and and I, it, it happens when we're doing the two fifty because there's movies that aren't on the two fifty, and we think. Well, looking at some of the movies on the 250 and how bad they are. If this movie <laughs> isn't even good enough for, for to have made that list, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but, but this is the thing, right? So. Um, with North by Northwest, right, it exists in the, like, in Hitchcock's body of work, it's right after Vertigo, and it's right before Psycho, and those are generally regarded as two of his best films. Um, in particular, Vertigo has seen its its prestige rise dramatically in the 90s and, and into the noughties. Well, it's, it's top of sight and sound. It's yeah, sight it's and sound number one film, yeah. Of all time. And, I mean, even, even Psycho um, has also got that sort of prestige around it. I mean, is there a sense that, like, North by Northwest is in some ways overshadowed or overlooked in terms of like critical appraisals because it's not as serious or somber as like or groundbreaking as as either of those two yeah. films and i don't think it it had the same impact on directors did did we talk about vertigo was it vertigo um a number of times in relation to um park chan wook well park chan wook's a big hitchcock fanboy like yeah he, and and so is brian de palma as well like. brian de palma yeah and i mean i think the so argument- two directors that we've kind of with with movies on the two fifty, who, who, who we've covered recently, who kind of, um, but I don't think they mentioned they specifically called out North by Northwest. Well, I think it was, it was well, Peter Dogdanovich and uh, Martin Scorsese have described North by Northwest as a perfect movie, mm-hmm. um, like which is is like a hell of a praise to get, and hell of a praise to get from Bogdanovich and from Martin Scorsese. It's rare you can say that. Yeah, that you could yeah. say like this is a perfect embodiment of a movie. Yeah. But there is a sense that it doesn't get the, it doesn't have the same cultural cachet as say as say Vertigo or as say Psycho. It, but it it does in a different way. So it hasn't had the impact on the what we would now consider to be other classic films. But its influence on Bond is extraordinary. I mean, oh, absolutely. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's thinking about like um, from Russia with Love, um, and I I think Niall, you were saying. 
Um, yeah, Casino Royale as well. There's a Live and Let Die. Well, Spectre yeah. even yeah. has a scene on a train yeah. that's very reminiscent of this. Were well, you saying that Hitchcock was no, uh, it was considered? Carter, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Hitchcock was reportedly uh, approached very early on, around uh, long before Doctor No, but when they had the rights, apparently to, to do it. Mm. Um, and rumor has it Cary Grant was considered too old, but like well, it is, he's fifty-five in this. Seems so. really old in this. And yeah. there's there's a scene where the actors oh, playing his mother. Uh, yes. No, yeah, well, yeah. There's 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 the actress playing his mother who seems the same age but there's She's also nine years older than him. there's there's also uh, the scene where, where the uh, femme fatale says i'm eve i'm 26 and and i work in um industrial design. Uh, in industrial design it's yeah. like i'm an advertising man not going to tell you my age. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, they're very, they're very. Not going to point out how inappropriate yeah, this, this is. This dynamic yeah. is here. Well, I mean, you want to you want to talk about the influence of the film. The influence of the film, like it, in many ways shapes how. And it's ironic because it's a 1959 film, but I'd say it shapes a lot of how we see the 60s. In terms of it's, it's obviously a huge influence on Mad Men. Um, Matthew Weiner sort of singled it out. Obviously, that's another show about an advertising executive, one of whom is named Roger, always wearing a grey suit, um, who has an awkward relationship with his mother and two ex-wives, and and alcoholism as and well. And alcoholism, and more yeah. than that, he later goes on in the show to experiment with LSD, much like Cary Grant himself would go on to engage in LSD therapy. I think. Grant has argued that his use of LSD in later life sort of kept him from prominent leading man roles as well after after this point. So I think it is safe to say that we it does... also have he's super old. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a man, Andrew. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. But um, there, is a, there is a sense that, like, it did have... It does have a cultural footprint, and it does affect how we sort of look at... Like, there are scenes in this, and particularly the crop duster scene, which I don't think it's spoiling to mention. We won't talk about the particulars of it. But there are scenes in this that... You're right, when I think about classic cinema, like I think of that sequence of Cary Grant trying to outrun a plane. And it's it it is sort of magical and wonderful. It just feels like there's a sense that yeah, that is what he was trying to do. Well, at that time, p- people's experience of he sounds like he's been on planes plenty. I've <laughs> <laughs> never been running next but to Roger one. is yeah. not the smartest tool in the box, which we'll probably <laughs> talk about a little later on. But I can see him looking at a plane, going, "I think I can take it." <laughs> well, in fairness, the, 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 the two scenes are that's cross-cut because this footage of the crop of the crop duster and Cary Grant running from it are two completely different things so, yeah. Yeah. So oh yeah he was, he was in a soundstage jumping they weren't acting yeah they're acting here boy <laughs> they, no they no. weren't going to let the, the... <laughs> oh no for, but no that, that's why Jimmy Stewart didn't do the film they tried it once and they got to that point and Stewart got uh, yeah. recently here in, in, in an Irish production Carbrook Gangsters they have a scene where a guy is being menaced with a chainsaw and the actor and the chainsaw are in very close proximity to one another in real life with the chainsaw on. And is the chain on the chainsaw, yes. crucially? Yeah. Oh. And so is that how they do it in films? So do they take the chain off? Well, they say, like, for, for example, if you're um, in a place I used to work in the States, this time of year, they uh, had a corn maze where they would get one of the employees to to put on a hockey mask and run around <laughs> with it, with a chainsaw, but of course take the chain on. It still makes the noise, but um, it won't. And horribly. it still looks like a chainsaw, okay. but there's just like l- less sharp edges. All okay. right, would it still? If you got hit with that, presumably it would still cause damage, right? Just not as much, right? I'd, Moving at that speed. 
I don't. I don't know if they're. I, <laughs> Sorry, health and safety. I don't think anyone we'll, would move. We'll do, oh, okay. We'll we'll yeah. do a video later on. <laughs> and sort of put this to uh, test. Yeah, in 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 uh, Dar- Dar- Darren's uh, garden. Uh, with my big chainsaw. Midbusters. Mid- yeah. Well, my, my point yeah. is with the carbon gangsters one is they discovered that taking the that turning the chainsaw off and adding the sound after had the same effect. So they didn't actually need to menace the guy <laughs> with the real. <laughs> but but they did anyway because authenticity. Um, <laughs> no, I assume they figured it out after the fact. Is they figured it out during the shoot. So oh, okay. when they were looking for other angles on this <laughs> on this particular shot, lots of coverage, lots and lots of coverage. Um, but so anyway, with that in mind, then I, I guess the only thing left to ask is uh, before we sort of segue into talking about the film in more depth is. Do you think that this belongs on the top 250 movies of all time? And would you recommend that people watch it? Niall, I suspect we know your answers to these questions uh, already. Uh, absolutely, yeah. It, it, it deserves to be there for, for many, many reasons. But like mostly because it is, it is a perfect encapsulation of the work of Hitchcock and of that time period of, and of thrillers of that era. And it's just so well crafted it's just so it's a jigsaw perfectly assembled mm. and it, it's almost kind of unfair like with, with Hitch, Hitchcock movies that that I've seen yeah they they all seem to be like there's very few times on the podcast where where um, where we said this this is uh, this is perfect I, 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 I think I think we uh, or at least I came to that conclusion with Jaws where it's like no, not a single frame you would move out of that film. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, they, and 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 this isn't a short film. No, so like 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 in order to 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 kind of make a perfect movie, yeah, you <laughs> the the chances of doing that are are decreased like the longer you make it and i guess the more the more um i suppose convoluted you make it now this 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 this, this is in ways a a convoluted movie that doesn't make sense but it, it's like no the it's, lesser for it yeah it's it's twisty it's turny it has lots of reveals it doesn't necessarily follow a, a linear or organic structure no. there are lots of contrivances lots of coincidences lots of luck and happenstance and confusion and in fact like the <coughs> characters themselves most of them are confused about various other motivations and what's happening at certain points yeah but it still holds together immaculately well it's still mm. like it's and i think it's a testament to sheer craft i think to technique to like ability to the like the ability to make this story make sense and to make it follow easy to follow and make it sort of yeah. make it feel like something that is moving from one place to the next logically the one thing i'd be interested to talk about in the next section is what um, which is a question that darren uh, generally asks and i imagine he'd be asking niall is is what this movie was about for you because i i i guess it it it, it didn't seem to me to to have um i guess the weight kind of uh, to 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 it where 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 i suppose I, I, I kind of like came away thinking wow what a great movie but at the same time not well uh, i mean I, I would argue that's the reason why it's not in the same critical conversation as films like vertigo and psycho which are yeah. very film school that you can pick apart and you can say it's about this it's about that exactly i think there is stuff that this is about though well, had, oh, it, had it come 20 I years did... later it may have been the first summer blockbuster that's a very fair point, actually, because it arrived in June, I believe, in yeah. the year in question. Is, but and yeah, because obviously Jaws is about how scary penises are uh-huh. um, sailing through big blue vaginas. Yeah. But um, enough of that. And <laughs> um, that's a different podcast entirely. Entirely. But I, I think I think you're right, though. I mean, Hitchcock has talked himself about how 
um, the only symbolism that he wanted in the film, the only symbolism he put in intentionally in the film, was the shot of the train entering the tunnel, which everybody knows. It's not really a spoiler. Like, but that was the only piece of sort of subtle, sort of conscious thematic sort of or, or sort of subtext that he tried to weave into the work. In Hitchcock's in Hitchcock's point of view, this is all just enjoyable fluff. It's yeah, not in the script. and it kind of it's not in the script. The, the train entering the tunnel at the end is not in the script. Okay, that's some good improv. Yeah. <laughs> The, the train was just trying some things. Yeah. <laughs> he was going through that phase. Everybody goes yeah, through a no, phase. No. Everybody wants let to go me, through a tunnel. Let me, let me do that again. This yeah. time I'm going to go through a tunnel. Yeah. Um, but we'll see how it plays. So with that in mind, then we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Niall. Yes. What is North by Northwest about for you? Uh, escape. Okay. It, it is. It's a purely escapist film. It's about. It's about a guy who lives a humdrum existence, and due to like a complete happenstance, is thrown into a world completely away from what he's used to, and it it becomes a race for survival. But also, it opens up the possibilities for him as to what he can be. And even though it's happening to mid to later in life, it's still. It's, hey, we don't know how old he is. No, no, huh? but that's the yeah. thing. It's it's take take a chance, take a risk, do something, break out of your mold, escape. That's a very good point, actually, because yeah. there there's the line at the end of the movie where they um, they're dangling off that yeah, rush. Yeah, yeah. It says, "How did it uh, not work out with your other wives?" And it's like, "Oh, they said I wasn't interesting enough. Or they, they found me far too boring." And, While and, dangling off yeah. that Rushmore, battling Russian spies for exactly. microfilm. It kind of reminds me of it's like. Total Recall, where um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Obligatory character Verhoeven has, <laughs> yeah, has 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 decided that that he wants to have this kind of secret agent kind of experience. It feels like it's kind of um, been been given to uh, to Thornhill has a present, and he hasn't been told about it. <laughs> like David Fincher's <laughs> The Game, sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, uh, do you do you know what do you know what Roger would really enjoy is 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 is, is <laughs> dangling like, off Lincoln's oh, nose. Oh yeah, and there has to be a blonde, and there's some communists. Um, yeah, but it's okay because he gets to wear his grey suit all the way through. Yeah, that's the one condition. The, the man with one grey suit, which is <laughs> because the man with one red shoe is a you know is Tom Hanks as Cary Grant in North by Northwest. You know, yeah. so but yeah, so he's the man with one grey suit, which is perhaps a bit more like the Jimmy Stewart doing. Yeah. It, to be honest. he's but the thing is that uh, in Total Recall, it's voluntary. Yeah, it's not. In North by Northwest. No, so he which did, is why I think yeah. it was like a Christmas present. <laughs> but it's like the game. It's, it's like with Sean Penn. Is it, and, yeah. Or is it his mother trying to get him out of, out of, out of her life? It's <laughs> a strange he, one, that. How like his his mother has become kind of like a, 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 a proxy for like a wife. Yeah. Whereas like a man needs um, yeah. someone a, to a, look after them. Well, a boy's best friend is his mother, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, into yeah. psycho territory here. <laughs> well, I, I mean, actually, I, we'll talk about this a little later on because I think there's a, there is actually a surprising amount of psycho to this, but that's probably not not now. But I think there is a sense of yeah of, of him being this very humdrum, very boring individual, and the fact that when he's he's caught drunk driving, the fact that he calls his mother down, like it's it's literally like, oh, mom, can you come pick me up? He's Seymour Skinner. Yeah, that's it exactly. This is his Armin Tanzarian <laughs> <laughs> <years>. <laughs> 
No, they didn't give me a chaser. Um, it, by the way, the script is fantastic. I mean, I feel like maybe we were a bit mean to it before. We were talking about how it's a bunch of random things that happen, but the dialogue sparkles in this. The, the, I, the, um, the <laughs> when when uh, Thornhill goes, um, he, he's escaping from the hospital and climbs yes. into the room <laughs> next to him and uh, in the dark, I was into like a woman's room and she's like, Stop! Stop! <laughs> sorry, she sorry. puts she puts on her glasses and looks yeah. at him and then is like, "Oh no, stop!" <laughs> yeah, it's like the moment she realizes that he's Cary Grant. Um, but there is and there's there's a lot of that stuff. There's a lot of really great banter between um, Eve Eve Kendall and, and Roger Thornhill. Like even the bit where they're flirting on the dining not car, subtle. <laughs> not subtle at all. It's like I'm I'm reading my book and it's not very good. Maybe you could come by my room. Do you know what I'm saying? And there is like a good two three second pause where you can see Roger's gears turning in his head and he's like. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's great that he he exists in this bubble where he's like a very handsome man, doesn't need to be particularly intelligent, but has a great job. Yeah, like, like so he's basically Don Draper, lots, really. Lots of people like listening to him with rapt attention. Yeah, and he's just like, say, say, I I've just arrived to this important meeting, but I've realized I've got to make a call. You don't mind if I if I go out to make a telegram? Of course we don't. Why would we want to mind? We only schedule this business meeting to talk about business. Why would we consider that rude when you're so handsome? <laughs> and, and we've already been waiting here one drink. This yeah. Generation. Yeah. yeah. But there, there is this... I actually love the, the sense that, it, that recurs throughout that like that... Yeah, Roger Thornhill is not a particularly smart man, but he's blundered through life because he looks like Cary Grant. Yeah, um, he looks like a cartoon pilot. <laughs> <laughs> but he does, I like that's Which, John no, Hamm, isn't no, no. it? Yeah, from um, 30, 30 Rock. Rock. But yeah. it's also why Catch Me If You Can is so heavily influenced by this too. It has the that, that same sort of, you know, escapist fantasy aspect to it, pretending to be somebody you're not, but willingly in that in Catch Me If You Can's case as well, but the, it, it follows the same sort of caper cadence yeah. that, uh, that Northwest North has, which is like, yeah, your pilot's analogy isn't that far off. <laughs> off the mark. Well, it is, because, I mean, it's full of travel. Like, yeah. it's very exotic. It's practically, like, we listened to a trailer a couple of weeks ago when we said we were doing this film, and it Andrew was very disappointed that it wasn't the Alfred Hitchcock introduces you <laughs> to... Um, in the well, same way that some of well, hello. Yeah. But there, there is one, and, and it's the Alfred Hitchcock Travel Agency, where Alfred Hitchcock pretends, yeah, pretends to be running a travel agency. We'll I'm see if we... running a very classy travel agency. And he basically gives you Would a list... You like some tickets for this picture? A list of, uh, a list of places that it's going to visit. Yeah. And so it's like, you're going to see Mount Rushmore. You're going to go visit the cornfields in Indiana, near Indiana. Um, you're going to do all this sort of exciting, adventurous I stuff. I want this. <laughs> but, but like Hitchcock would famously he would build the studios for his vacations because he was so convinced that he would find material for films while taking them like he was so convinced that it was basically location scouting except as a as a hobby an excuse to see the states that he would actually build the studios for for the time he spent traveling that's amazing to me yeah well he built the, he built the, the set the, the popular set for the for that where towards the end of, of the film he built that on the back lot in in hollywood because he refused to film it in south dakota in the actual 
Uh, would they have let him? Would they have let him near the monument? The Department of the Interior let them near the monument and then, and so they could get the establishing shots and then Hitchcock went into the newspaper and kind of screwed up when he said that he's going to have his actors capering around, fr- frolicking, I think, around... <laughs> we don't want that sort of activity and, in, in yeah, South Dakota. So the, the Department of the That's Interior North Dakota. Pu- pulled his... Uh, pulled his permit and so he they rebuilt the, the Rushmore set oh really so they could, yeah. it didn't matter that they were fighting like there, there, there's a weird thing in this where it turns out the baddies are um are on, on the wrong side of of, of, of the, the iron curtain and and that, and that they're but there's no kind of real sense of it's a strange one because it's it's the plot doesn't matter at all. No, the no, plot, the, the plot makes no but, difference. But, but yeah, oh, it's like where they're they're flying off now to Russia somewhere, maybe. <laughs> they, Cuba, to, yeah, the, like like well, the, from South Dakota, right? You could presumably fly across the Bering Sea, right? You, you could, but you'd end up in the part of Russia where nobody lives. But I mean, <laughs> like, and that film's general push is westerly, right? Because it begins in like New York, and then he moves to Chicago, and then he ends up in South Dakota. Like it is a it is a push westward. Because it may it makes sense north by northwest. It makes sense that the that the that the gardener slash hitman and his wife. Um, <laughs> Are, are just driving across the uh, accessible border to Canada. But yeah, where are these... Like, like, it would take long enough to get to Alaska from there. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe you're worrying too much. Next thing you're going to want to know what's on the microfilm. Yeah. Um, That's not actually microfilm. Yeah, it's actual film. It's not- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to capture microfilm um, <laughs> with the human eye. Yeah, um, <laughs> If they if they burst it open and there is this little, yeah. little what is that? Yeah, it and looks a, like a caption for yeah. the audience. This is microfilm with a little arrow pointing to it yeah. as well. But there is like Hitchcock fa- magnify, well, magnify, it- magnify. <laughs> enhance, enhance, enhance. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the famous story is that this is Hitchcock's favorite MacGuffin from all of his films, the microfilm in this one, because it's so completely meaningless in that you get no sense of what's really on it. You've got oh, no yeah. sense of what's really at stake. The, the, and it's this, introduced late in the movie. The Central Intelligence Agency slash FBI don't know what it is. They're like maybe government secrets. Seems maybe like a recipes. Safe yeah, <laughs> seems like a safe bet. <laughs> yeah, but there is there's there's this wonderful vagueness to it. But I mean, in in terms, whatever of... it is, we're prepared to kill to get it. <laughs> yeah. um, it just seemed like everybody else was after I it as well. If the villains know what it is. <laughs> yeah, that is a question. Although to be fair, it's not microfilm. You can just hold it up to a light and see what it is. Exactly, it's nudie pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, in, but no, but in, in behind the Iron Curtain, they would have been difficult to get, so they might actually have value. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and they, yeah, they've they've just got blue suede shoes in the carry on. Yeah. <laughs> but they all of the villains look vaguely Eastern European or vague, vaguely German, East German. They're done in such a way that they could all be stereotypical former Bond Nazis. Yeah. yeah. What well, I mean, because it, it is. Oh. A, you talked about how this. You talked about how this was an influence of Bond. It is pretty much a Bond villain. It is a Bond movie to the point where you have like. James Mason's sort of Philip Van Damme is the sort of vaguely camp, vaguely foreign, um, sort of ominous, cultured, witty sort of villain who's up to no good collaborating with the Russians. And, and his sidekick is Leonard, um, who has only a first name and is just just a little camp, just camp enough. He, like, the, the lines couldn't really be delivered seriously these days because it's like your next performance <laughs> will be your last. Be, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, oh, it's it's terrific though watching the the um, James Mason 
kind of and yeah yeah the old the old school sort of campy stuff i mean that there is like worth noting this is martin landau's first is it his first film or is it it was his big break anyway? it was his, yeah it was the first one that he that yeah that he's named in and this is also one of george a ramiro's first films as well if i remember correctly was it yeah he was working on it as uh in the sound department or he was, he was on it in, in, in one of small capacity. It just so happens that they were both... <laughs> Working on. together. Because, I mean, we were, we were sort of... Myself and Andrew were wondering, obviously, in the year both uh, Martin Landau and George A. Romero passed away in, in close proximity to one another. We were sort of wondering if we could talk about them a little bit because, like, Romero is one of my favourite sort of directors he's and just a, sadly not on the top 250 no not anymore only yeah. dawn of the dead dawn of the dead was the only movie he made that ever made the list and it's not on it anymore i was kind of thinking could we get away with could we call it a zombie episode or would that be in bad taste um but it was um but then this the fact that they both worked on this in some capacity is remarkable it was just interesting to be able to sort of trace that back and to sort of yeah. see that it's a bit like earlier in the year where we had paris texas with harry dean stanton and with sam shepherd yeah, so we like also an, worked in close proximity together. Yeah, two people who have recently passed. It is. It's. It's kind of, and it is like it's a great role for for Lando. Lando is really, really good in it, even as sort of a henchman. You could almost see like the template of a Bond villain henchman there, and that he doesn't have a gimmick in that he doesn't really have like it's not like he's missing an arm or an eye or or some sort of physical disfigurement. Mm. But there is something vaguely creepy and menacing about him. I think Niall, you mentioned that like they look like they could be Eastern European. There's a point where he references the old Gestapo trick. That's of like right. shooting somebody with blanks. So like, part of his kind of backstory. Yeah. yeah. Where, where you're like, how did that casually come up in conversation? Well, you know? see, they could be Stasi. They could be because the idea is that they're... You know, they're, they're, they're Russian. Well, yeah. I mean, Leonard is very clearly like more involved in what's going on than I think... Uh, I think Van Damme is in that he seems more organized and more sort of like tied into and making sure the logistics work. Whereas Van Damme is like, I like living in this nice house. I like living with this beautiful woman. I like making witty repartee. Yeah, I feel like um, Van Damme is kind of the, um, some version of Max Zarin where he's a wealthy uh, French industrialist, but but a wealthy uh, Belgian industrialist in (laughs) this case. And is like turned by the Soviets to to kind of work as an asset, and then his handler is probably Leonard. Yeah, who's like, um, can I, can I just point out a few things to you? Yeah, yeah. maybe not the best strategy we're doing here. You know? Yeah, maybe these coincidences aren't really coincidences. Just throwing it out there. Um, yeah, there is. There's a wonderful sort of menace to Leonard, um, like there, and particularly even because he doesn't do much in the film. He doesn't really have that bigger role aside from the climax where he chases it's, them down the mountain and gets a, shot in the back. It's a very special skill to to not be charmed by beautiful blonde women, and you have to sele- select these people very carefully to kind of put them in your intelligence services. Well, that, that, was... that way they can rule, uh, root out a mole where no one else can. <laughs> yeah. when, like, when the mole is a beautiful blonde woman. Please don't let the mole be a beautiful blonde woman. <laughs> That's our fatal weakness. Most yeah. intelligence services I, in like, the 60s were built with that weakness in place. Exactly. Uncle had a serious problem with that. They, yeah, they, and like James Bond kind of... Um, well, I think even when he knows they're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're one of the baddies, it's still kind of like... Of course, you'll seduce me. Um, yeah, and yeah, I th- I think like we we've said that he's a bit dim, but also also I think like he asks far less questions because um, she's so attractive. Yeah, it's and just I, I, like 
wow, she's just throwing it out there. <laughs> I, I love that, like, when she shoots him in the Mount Rushmore tourist attraction, the police sketch is basically, we're looking for an attractive blonde. Um, and it's like, this is the only description you need. Well, that's yeah. how Hitchcock went into the casting agency and said, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the character description we have in the script. That we're, we're, and we're not changing it for anything. I mean, yeah. there's also the nice bit where you have the, the truck drivers in the wonderful plane sequence, which we'll probably talk about later, where the newspapers, which is Andrew pointed out, the newspapers in the world of North by North West seem to publish on an hourly basis yeah but there's one like truck drivers survive holocaust yeah and now and, this and now this <laughs> <laughs> but um the the movie i think works so well because thornhill is so unquestioning and because he is so dim and he's literally like there are points where, like how do you get that newspaper so fast <laughs> <laughs> that only happened 15 minutes ago <laughs> it's like, like he's he's so Okay, the, 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 the movie starts, he gets in a taxi, goes to... Um, a meeting. Goes to a meeting where, where he's wearing a suit. Um, <laughs> then, then he's taken to a house. He's forced to drink a bottle of scotch. Bourbon, isn't it? Yeah. Bourbon, sorry. Oh, he's given a... Yeah, he's given, he's, he's given some choices, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So They're he not goes, monsters, Andrew. He goes for a bourbon in the end. Um, it's like, what would you like to be force-fed? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so then he spends a night in prison. Next morning, uh, still wearing the same suit, um, goes to the, hotel? the same house again, yeah. goes oh, to yeah. the hotel, goes to the United Nations, <laughs> is framed for murder, runs away, the newspaper comes out, the, With a picture of him wearing the same suit. Yeah. Then he gets an overnight <laughs> train. <laughs> train. Which, by the way, he doesn't change his suit. I like that when he's going undercover, he puts on a set of sunglasses. Yeah. But he doesn't change his suit. <laughs> there are some yeah, things this man will not do. Yeah, it's like he went around still holding the knife. Yeah. <laughs> kind of with a surprised look. I, I do. Um, like... I, I love how clueless he is in this movie. Like, there's a point where he's talking to Townsend at the United Nations. Townsend gets knifed in the back. So not only does he catch him as he's falling and sort of hug him a little bit, he also puts his hand on the knife, pulls it out, turns to the camera, holding the bloody knife as if he's just stabbed him, looking slightly confused. <laughs> and then you, to make matters worse... Do you know begins... why there's no blood on this knife? <laughs> That's because it's 1959 um, yeah. and the Hays Code is still in effect. But he still sort of starts to threaten everybody else on his way out. And you're like, I see no way this can end badly. It's like, yeah. There's like a, tra- a tree of bad decisions that gets him where he needs to be. Yeah, at the point where at the point where Eve is seducing and spending the night with him, I'm like, this guy smells terrible. <laughs> he smells of bourbon and sweat. And, and I don't think he's changed in several days. I, but she's she is also being forced to seduce him. Seduce him. So I know. Yeah. It must be so like, being so she, to she left a note. Him. What should I do in the morning? He smells really bad. <laughs> yeah. Can I draw this suit out? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she did make him get changed, and then he changed back into yeah. the suit. And he's like, "Let me just pretend to take a shower." Yeah. <laughs> I really hope he's taking an actual shower. Yeah. But I mean, and he's not. And, and there's the great payoff. There's a wonderful payoff in the final action sequence where they're dangling off Mount Rushmore and he has been forced to change his pants by the FBI or by the CIA, by the professor. And they're dangling off and she falls. And because he's not wearing his grey suit pants, when she tries to grab his back pocket, well, look, that's not a tailored suit. It doesn't no, hold. It that's just government tears. issue. Yeah, it just tears. And you're like, this wouldn't have happened if I'd been allowed to wear my grey suit. Yeah. Like the tersile strength of that grey suit after everything it's been through. 
That's, that's, well, that's his armor, isn't it? That's yeah. I mean, how often do you see Superman change his suit? I mean, you know, it's not I, yeah, I, Batman. I, you know, <laughs> well, in fairness, yeah, that is, and, and the glasses are very Clark Kent, to be absolutely honest. And that's how you know in the CIA or in the FBI uh, when someone has been turned by the communists is when they're wearing better clothes. <laughs> <laughs> they start spending money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Niall mentioned earlier the issues that uh, Hitchcock had filming in uh, South Dakota. Yeah. Fun fact about the UN sequences. Um, Hitchcock wanted to shoot in the UN um, and he wasn't allowed for various reasons. There are certain rumours and suggestions. I'm actually disappointed I wasn't able to get more, more in depth on these. Gabon so, who didn't want to. <laughs> well, well, some of the, um, some of the issues... Equatorial was, Guinea had an objection <laughs> yeah. at the 11th hour. Oh, yeah. they, they just basked in it. Well, there was some suggestion that because of the, the material involved, the murder of Townsend there, maybe the UN didn't want to be associated with production. There's also some suggestion that like the lobby of the building, which had recently been constructed had been used in like the glass wall and the UN had disapproved of its use it thought it was inappropriate in that film even though I can't figure out why it would have thought that was inappropriate so what Hitchcock had to do was he had to film the scene where Grant arrives at the United Nations uh, from inside a van parked opposite so there's the shot How where he gets are they out of the not at all suspicious about this van <laughs> flowers was, by Irene it was, it was, they had a handsome man driving yeah it yeah. was the 50s you could get a hotel room just uh, by smiling um, yeah there's a lot of very like uh, very pre 9 11 it's like yeah I guess on the 50s it's like so is this person pipe- staying at your hotel <laughs> Yes. Uh, do they have any messages? Let me check that for you. Uh, I'm just going to go up to the room. Okay, enjoy your stay, sir. Uh, can I get you a key? Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's, it's the... I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I've, I've ran out of checks in my checkbook. Can I just write on this piece of paper and you'll give me $500? Certainly, sir. Well, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> to catch me if you can. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it's such a kind of like a trusting time where every, 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 everything seems to be so easy to kind of must be a great, great time of, yeah. for espionage and for con artists and for criminals. <laughs> exactly. Well, we, go, we go back to the, to the UN scene. When Carrie goes in to the building, there's a double take by one of the people there because they see Carrie Grant come into the building. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's this... Well, okay, the, the inside of the building is a matte painting and apparently Hitchcock right. figured it out. What he did was he went in posing as a tourist and took pictures that he then used to make the matte painting and there, sort of the design There's a great set. kind of an aerial sh- shot as well, which I don't think yes. is an aerial shot. No, it's, it's a yeah. matte painting as, as Grant is leaving, as, um, as Roger's running out. Yeah, and they put a... They, they put an ant in a little tiny suit <laughs> a little grey suit and made it run in the direction of those model taxi cars yeah. but like there is let's talk about this because there's a lot of weird performance sort of self-aware stuff in this like there's a lot of points where it feels like the movie's not so much about Roger Thornhill as it is about Cary Grant because um, there are points where like uh, you know Van Damme is talking about how he needs to be a better actor and he's just playing it too broad and all this sort of stuff and you have like the, this use of the, the sets and the matte paintings that are very consciously fake and like the, even in by the sounds of the 50s the, the very similitude sort of uh, very similitude looks sort of it, it looks very much like a movie and it feels very much like a movie oh, yeah, it's got all the classic drive over driving yeah. se- sequences well, as well with the rear projection yeah, yeah. And, and great drunk driving from, from Cary, Cary Grant there great <laughs> drunk performance oh yeah he's he his drunken portrayal is probably the be, his best 
thing in it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And like, like, and it's very, like, I guess it's difficult to do drunk without ma- ma- making Going it comedic. Handy. Yeah. Um, well, it yeah. is a little comedic. Like, it, like it, it, uh, yeah, it is. up on the table to go and sleep. <laughs> yeah. Of course, but even like when he's driving, it's like, nah. <laughs> there are actual yeah. stakes here. Yeah. Um, it's these looks in his eyes that that if vocalized would be like, <laughs> but but there mm. there's this this wonderful sort of hammy self aware quality of the film where it is very much like it's aware that you're watching a film about a chase. It's aware that it's it's not, and I think even the fact the plot is such nonsense, the film is aware of how ridiculous it is, and I think that that works very very well because you have obviously like you have the map paintings in the UN, you have that wonderful aerial shot which is astounding, and you have even the the opening credit sequence which is designed by Saul Bass, mm. where like the lines give way to the urban cityscape. It's it's just like there is a sense that this is very much like. And it's been described, I know Andrew doesn't like when I use the word Brechtian to describe anything short of like stopping and turning to the camera and talking to the audience. But it does have that sort of self-aware quality to it. Like it has that very sort of, and it's, it's all about performance and it's all about I, pretending. I think, I think it's a remove. You yeah. know, that does not be Brechtian alienation. Yeah, but yeah it, it, like dramatic irony isn't, isn't something new. It's in no. the, the work of like Cervantes and yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, but it's also staged. So, you know, there, yeah. it is... There is a, a element of theater to it. Yeah, yeah. and I, but I think it's woven into the the plot in a very self aware way. Like it's it's very much sort of the film is very canny about it. And I mean, like there's an element of like there are points where like Roger Thornhill seems to almost be like star people seem starstruck like there's the moment where he wanders in and it's not just because he's a handsome man who looks like Cary Grant it's almost like yes he is but Cary Grant he is famous in that world because he's the front page of all the newspapers as the UN slayer so yeah. there is that I don't think that's what makes a woman say stop no, no, no. no. That, that, there's <laughs> lots of women who, no, no, who write letters to to, <laughs> to, to UN killers. I mean, Charles yeah, Manson. Yeah. Yeah. He has wives, doesn't he? He has a family. <laughs> people, people felt sorry for for Charles Manson when they found out that 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 his that his wife was was um, was maybe in it for the wrong reasons. They're like, oh, Charles Manson had finally found somebody. <laughs> So, do you want to talk about the crop duster scene? Because that is one of the, it's one of the defining sort of Hitchcock moments. It's one of the most Hitchcock of scenes, I would argue, because it's just, it is sheer tension. You've had the the Bernard Herrmann score that's going throughout the film up until that point, and it just sort of stops. Mm. And it stops as you see the bus driving up the road, and what follows is like a good five, six minutes of like relative silence and just tension. It's like, it's him standing at the side of the road and you get these nice long establishing shots to kind of to give you a sense of how small he is in the grand scheme of things you get like shots from the background you get cars driving by and you've got this wonderful tension as to like is is you know is Kaplan going to be in one of these cars even though you know Kaplan doesn't exist at this point yeah but even you know is is it going to turn out is somebody going to get out of those cars and try and kill him is there somebody lurking behind the cornrows you have like the the hum of obviously the crop duster over the crops in the distance you have the car pull out from behind the reeds uh which makes you wonder what exactly they were doing behind the reeds the villains in this movie are um this is another way in which it's setting up um, James Bond movies um, they're terrible at uh, killing people I sense that a lot of the plans for, for dispatching for, Roger for, Thornhill yeah who they think is Kaplan for for 
for killing him were were thought of by Van Damme rather than Leonard. Where it's like, let's go for something theatrical. And it's like, oh, uh, make sure you pick up that envelope with the microfilm in it. No, it'll be in a it'll be in an ancient ornament in an auction where someone could outbid me. <laughs> it adds the vicarious thrill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, Mr. Barnhill, I expect you to die. Yeah. yeah. How, did, how did the microfilm get in the object there? Ah, <laughs> But um, but yeah. yeah, there's a plan. So they... how 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 are we going to kill him? Something something that'll look like an accident. Like let's shoot him with a plane, <laughs> <laughs> with a crop duster, <laughs> with a crop duster in the yeah. middle of like the Indiana or the Indiana. No one's going to ask any questions what? about, about this plane, <laughs> like this uh, uh, with a machine gun, <laughs> like shooting a at fly a by shooting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the the amount of logic that it takes to get there because you have to know. A, when he's going to arrive. B, where he's going to be standing. Yeah. C, how much pesticide you're dumping. Because the plane is actually crop dusting at the yeah. time. So you have to time that perfectly and actually know how to operate a crop duster yeah, while but, operating a machine But don't check which, which fields have crops. <laughs> no, he, it does though. It, it Properly it looks like it's crop dusting and then it gets closer. That's when the other guy notices that yeah. uh, it's, it's out... But the, it, the um, you know the original pitch, right? You know that Hitchcock's original because the idea was Hitchcock came up with the idea. This makes no sense. Hitchcock came up with the idea of okay, it was it was Hitchcock and Lehman who came up with the idea of killing him using a crop duster. But Hitchcock's original plan was that they would try to kill uh, Kaplan or Thornhill using a tornado. And it was Lehman who came up with, well... Well, Lehman just went, ah, no, no, stop, stop. Unless it's full of sharks, this isn't happening. Because yeah. <laughs> that, that gives you a sense of how Hitchcock plotted this movie. It's like, I want, the there to be, a napkin. Yeah, I want there to be a tornado. I want Cary Grant to be out running it. It's like, okay, why is the tornado trying to kill him? Because the bad guys are trying to kill him. It's like, okay, how do the bad guys summon a tornado? It's like, you're the writer. It's yeah. yeah we it's, get Bill Pullman. They're 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 as good as think of thinking up ways as as Van Damme is. Yeah. So it's like okay, what you're gonna do is fill him up with bourbon, and then and then drive him off a cliff. Won't I also be in the car from driving? Yeah. <laughs> like um, yeah, we'll work it out. It'll be great. Jump out of the car before it. It's <laughs> like. So <laughs> why why don't we just get him drunk and throw him off a cliff? Yeah. Eh. Why don't we just shoot him? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there there is that wonderful sense of like convolution that runs through the film. And I think that's part of the appeal is that it's very much, it's like, it's almost like Hitchcock is daring you to acknowledge that it is a Hitchcock film. Like that it's like, there is no reason for any of this to be as convoluted as it is, aside from the fact that you are watching an Alfred Hitchcock film and this is what an Alfred Hitchcock film looks like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you know that fake gun um that 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 i demonstrated earlier that uh, that 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 eve um appeared to use in the restaurant yeah they're like those the the real ones um they go on planes don't they it's like no you can actually just hold one and shoot a person with it um, <laughs> except it's got a, a little they, object in it and that shoots yeah. out and goes into the person so these are bullets that aren't blanks yeah. and, and, and and you can just use them to dispatch your enemies yeah um but- there is, and there's that sense of playfulness with the blanks, and obviously, can I, there's... Can I throw the gun at somebody so it sticks in their back? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're thinking of a knife. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the, I like the idea of them workshopping. I would actually love a little scene where the bad guys are all workshopping their elaborate death mechanisms. Yeah. It's like, um, and Leonard is just sort of sitting there smoking in the corner, um, <laughs> being like, "Give me patience." Um, 
But there is there is that sense of theatricality. I mean, that that's what I say when I say there is that sort of self-aware quality of the film. Like, there's the wonderful bit where um, the woman uh, who is the wife of Mr. N- Mrs. Knife Thrower, let's call her Mrs. Knife Thrower, right. um, where she notices Cary Grant sneaking around the house because she sees his reflection on a television. There's stuff like the use of the blanks and stuff like that. There's something that's very cartoonish about all this. Something that's very sort of like staged and very sort Cary of... Cary Grant kills her. Does he kill her, or did she just try and hold him up with the blank? With the gun with the blanks? Oh, is I, that what happened? Niall, want to weigh in on this? I, when, the, the, when, um, Mrs. The, Knife Thrower. Miss when yeah. she catches him, uh, when she sees him on the television and holds the gun to him. Yeah. And then he, there's the sound is of shooting. Is that the gun with he, the blanks? And he runs out of it's the house. It's the same size as the gun with the blanks. So maybe that is, that is that just small. the same gun then. I think maybe maybe she just didn't want to chase him out of the house. Because it, it would be really, really dark. It would be a really dark twist if out of nowhere, sort of, it turns out that Rich, Roger Thornhill has like, <laughs> has like a really dark strike to him. It would sort of play into the film's sort of psycho undertones, though. Because there's they're actually... I get a lot of... I see a, a surprising amount of Psycho in this film. Because we watched Psycho recently. Yeah. Because there's that sort of same tension of like a, somebody who lives in the city um, who basically is accused of committing a crime. Now, obviously, in this case, he hasn't committed the crime. But in, in Psycho, obviously, she has. And they go out to the country. And they find that in the country, things are even more disorderly and even more chaotic than they are in the city. So obviously there's there's the, you know, Norman Bates Motel and stuff like that that's in the middle of the vast American continent. But in here, you have, like, first of all, you have, like, scenes where crop dusters try to kill Cary Grant. Uh, but you also then have the big fight on, on Mount Rushmore. You have this idea of, like, the American wilderness being a chaotic place that's quite separate from the cityscape. And, like, there's a sense that as the film goes on, like, obviously, Roger Thornhill belongs in the city. He works on Madison Avenue. He's an advertising executive. He, you know, he can't, he doesn't really even walk two blocks because he wants to take a taxi. Or because his secretary wants to take a taxi. Like, that's how he navigates and gets around. First, he gets taken out of the city to go to the, the suburbs, the posh part. You know, the, where the residence is, where is Van Damme it? is living. Uh, which is sort of upstate New York. Uh, then he ends up sort of on the road in Indiana where he's almost killed by a crop duster. Then he ends up in, you know, sort of battling down the face of the presidents. And there's this sort of interesting sort of... And it is a literal push westerly, which I quite like about it as well. This sort of you exploration. love that. I do. I always love it. I love push westerlies. I mean, there's the... Um, the movie's title... title makes no sense because North by Northwest isn't a compass direction. No, it's not. Um, no. And... Hitchcock himself has come out, or has come out, came out at some point and said, while he never explained what the title meant, he did say that it was not, as many people have argued, a reference to Hamlet. Yeah. Hamlet features a line about North by Northwest, which is where madness lies. Yeah, North Northwest. North Northwest, yeah. 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 Um, the closest people have suggested that it refers to the flight that Cary Grant gets towards the end of the film. He gets a Northwest Airlines flight that would technically be flying north. Yeah, it's very... Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, very much a cross. Though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the sound of a crop duster flying overhead, dropping skepticism yeah. on that theory. Yeah, but um, Illinois to South Dakota is pretty, pretty level. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's only slightly north. Marginally um, north. Marginally north. Yeah. north. But, north by marginally north. <laughs> it, it's a much less catchy film. He did. There north. were there were various other titles. Like there was the Man in Lincoln's Nose because I think Hitchcock came up with the idea. Came up with the set piece at the end first. And work sort of backwards from there, which is again how Hitchcock worked. You had the set pieces, but then they would be going from left to right, <laughs> which of course wouldn't work. They would, they would, they would, they would need to end up at Washington's nose, of course. Yeah, and it just just wouldn't wouldn't fit together at all. No, no, <laughs> pushing westwardly, but from, from 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 Lincoln's nose. <laughs> 
<laughs> moving to, forward. Yeah, from from sea to shining nose. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, the original title of the film was North by, uh, was going to be The Man in Lincoln's Nose. And the original plan was for at one point Roger to... <laughs> it's a good thing that they think about these things. It's <laughs> like, it's going to be Lincoln's Nose. We're going to have tornadoes killing people. <laughs> yeah. um, Sent by be, villains. It's yeah. going to be a hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a smash success. It's good that there are people who say no to these things. But there is... Yeah, I, I imagine, because I was just saying like earlier, oh, he's like, like a perfect filmmaker. Um, it could have <laughs> so easily have gone wrong. But here's the thing, right? Given how chaotic the film is as it stands, how little the plot sort of makes sense in terms of like organic storytelling, like A to B to C to D. I'm kind of curious what that would look like if Hitchcock had been sort of unhindered. Like if Hitchcock had sort of been allowed to do a tornado trying to kill Cary Grant or had been allowed to do, like one of his sequences, this, the reason it was going to be called The Man in Lincoln's Nose was because there's going to be a sequence at the climax where Roger climbs into Lincoln's nose to hide, but sneezes, giving himself away. Ah. Uh, and I wonder what that would look like as a Hitchcock film. I wonder like... Well, Lincoln, Hitchcock... Lincoln sneezes because he's having his hair pulled out. Yeah. Right. No, uh, Roger, Roger Thornhill sneezes from inside Lincoln's nose. Which would echo which, out. And yeah, then, which yeah. would make it look like Lincoln had sneezed. The, the, um, well, I suppose um, we talk about kind of un, unhindered. I suppose he did get the title, which we agree makes no sense, <laughs> passed. Yeah. Um, and, and the plot and that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and the plot, yeah. But it doesn't matter. We, wanted to, we talk about chaos in, in, the, uh, in the actual film itself. or the, Chaos in the film in the making of the film as well because it went 33 days over yeah it made Cary Grant a lot of money because yeah. of his his writer and his contract yeah, if so, I remember correctly yeah so they had they essentially they got like a pineapple he for was, every day he was contracted for 45 days and then he was given money for every day that they went over and they went 33 days over and so this essentially he was given 440,000 dollars and then earned another near nearly 400,000 because <laughs> of the, the overrun because they had essentially they had they hadn't even really begun filming by the time his seven weeks was over. <laughs> um, Which does give you a sense of chaos. But I like I like that the film is about chaos in many ways, shapes, or forms as well. Like like you, you asked like earlier on you're wondering what I thought the film was about. It's for me it's a film about chaos and misunderstanding and trying to make sense of the world in a way that doesn't make sense. So all everything that happens over the course of the film is an extrapolation from confusion. So it's the fact that like Roger happens to raise his hand at the wrong moment in a bar, which gets him singled out by Leonard as Kaplan, when all he's doing is just calling over, um, the, you know, the, the how boy. Did, how did, so we don't know how that happened. How what happened? That, that, it, they, that they singled him out because they, he rose his hand. They sent a telegram for Kaplan. For Kaplan. And they called it out to the restaurant and wanted to see who... Who would respond to it. And Roger responded. And Roger, Roger, well, didn't uh, Roger raised his hand at the same time to yeah. call the telegram boy, boy over. over. Because he wanted to make a call to his mother. And it's uh, just, it's, it's pure coincidence and happenstance. And it happens repeatedly over the course of the film. Characters misunderstand each other, miscomprehend one another. Even in the earlier scene, there's the bit where like, he's calling to clear up an earlier misunderstanding. misunderstand you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> They'll never accept that they've made a misunderstanding at all. It's like, are you 100% certain that this is Kaplan? No. <laughs> Good enough for me. Yeah. But there is, yeah. like... Hitchcock loved these wrong man thrillers and loved this idea of like confusion and chaos and like the idea of like throwing somebody who was basically innocent into a horrific situation or making you wonder if a guilty person was, was responsible for their actions. Obviously, you know, like the man who knew too little, that sort of stuff, like the, the, the wrong man genre. But this is, to me, is particularly ridiculous because so much of it hinges 
on confusion and contrivance. Like, it's it's the fact that he calls at that moment, and even in that moment, he's calling to clear up a misunderstanding with his secretary and his mother. Yeah. Like, and the fact that when he's meeting the guy, you can see one of the guys is clearly cupping his ear because he can't hear what Roger's saying properly. And there's all this sort of stuff that happens back and forth over the course of the film where nobody's really clear what's going on or why it's happening or none of it makes any sense in any real way, shape, or form. And to the point where even, like, as you point out, the, the crazy stuff that Hitchcock's doing, like, oh, maybe they could kill him in a crop duster or with a tornado. Yeah, to the point where that like, doesn't feel irrational. If we can't, if we can't kill, kill him by, by hitting him with the wheels of the plane, <laughs> it's like, you sure that's a good idea? It's like, no, but you're going to do it anyway. You're going to try, and yeah. if that doesn't work, fine, you can use the machine gun. Yeah, but machine no, gun. Only, only start the machine gun after you've passed it. Yeah, if you can try and mangle him in the propeller, won't that kill us too? Nah, what am I, what, what am I a plane scientist? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If he's close enough to 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 <laughs> to a tankard full of gas, just fly into that because maybe that will kill him. There's yeah. more a chance than hitting him with your wheels. For God's yeah. sake. <laughs> like, but there there is that sense of like the film, the chaos is part of the film, and there's a sense that like Roger is just lost in a world he doesn't understand or comprehend, and that sort of speaks to me because it it it, it plays out in Psycho as well because Psycho when I watched it, it seems to be very much about the breakdown of moral order and the breakdown of like this idea of a world that makes sense and it's kind of interesting to see this film which comes directly before Psycho and is generally seen as more of a screwball comedy sort of touching on a lot of the ideas that I think you'd see drawn out in the next film that he did was well, so obligatory uh, Robocop reference there's there's uh, Hitchcock is better than Verhoeven at capturing people f- falling um, in that very uh, yeah, specific vert- sort of subset, drop. The, the the fall of Leonard is better than the fall of Dick Jones. Right? <laughs> Dick Jones' arms seem to kind of grow very long or something, where he's flailing about. I, I like that. I like yeah. that you you describe it in like poetic terms, like the fall of Leonard. The it's fall like, of Leonard. It's like well, yeah. the moment where Leonard starts sops yeah. shoving bourbon da, down da, people's throat da, and starts da, taking da. some of his own. Yeah, I, I, Hitchcock. Is better than Verhoeven <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like in a very specific case. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Hitch, 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 Hitchcock had a masterpiece in him, <laughs> but never uh, quite but got never there. Quite got to the level of like Showgirls. Um, no, <laughs> we can all aspire to Showgirls. Actually, I would love to see Alfred Hitchcock Showgirls. Um, I imagine there all puns. <laughs> Probably be more all choking and even more voyeurism. Um, yeah, yeah. There would be lots of kind of uh, yeah. It would be shot from like inside a cupboard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or outside the room because there is there is a lot of that in the film as well. There's a lot of watching and peering, and Roger is constantly watching. Like he's watching from behind the door when he's pretending to shower when he probably should be showering. He's watching from outside the house while Leonard's having his sort of lover's spat with Van Damme. There is a lot of that Hitchcock sort of peering stuff happening there as well, which is quite good. It, it it lays on the Cold War stuff very lightly, because it, it's it's kind of um, it it implies that they're losing the Cold War, but it it does it doesn't really it, I don't no think it's, it, it's I, not interesting. I don't gosh. think in 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 the culture maybe I want it. It feels like it hasn't gotten to the point where people feel very strongly one way or the other because because they Cary Grant's kind of opinion is oh well we shouldn't be putting people in danger. Um, like for 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 this cause of yours. Well, I mean, one year before the election of Kennedy, so mm. there was that sort of tension. Yeah, and it's it. after the revolution in Cuba. It's sure. It's during Eisenhower's presidency. Yeah. This is, and I I think early in Fidel's 
rule he had visited the United States and told the press kind of I'm no red and all of this sort of thing well the yeah. embargo hadn't been put in because Kennedy put the embargo in yes yeah. so. I mean I, I don't think the film is particularly well, concerned yeah, though I think, I, think, I think it was probably after the missile crisis that, that the real kind of worries well, that's when the, tr- the red scare was there all along and so you had McCarthyism <laughs> well, yeah. and the rest but the House on American Activities Committee would have been HUAC would have been around <laughs> this time right yeah, yeah we were talking about this and I, I think it was the bugle like the irony of the House of Un-American Activities Committee being like being the most so un-American committee yeah. you could imagine having. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think there's also a sense of... Um, Why is it guys with Irish names that are always on the wrong side of history? Like you had McCarthy and now we have Ryan and they're just on the wrong side of... <laughs> they're like, yeah, stop what you're at, lads. Yeah. Irish-Americans, <laughs> yeah. maybe not so... Uh, Maybe not so. Well, someone needs to do something about that disaster that is Obamacare. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 famously conservative <laughs> on, on uh, this podcast. podcast right? Yeah, we 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 uh, find find it necessary to talk about yeah, yeah politics. If we can work them in at any opportunity, we generally will. I do like what well, you were the one who brought up the Cold War and sort of yeah, decided, yeah, yeah, no, To be no, fair, um, yeah, yeah. What's what's the line? There's there's uh, lots of <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> But the, All right. The, 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 this this sorry, operates. Sorry, out of I shouldn't be glib about that. This does operate out of remove from the from the typical spy thriller type thing, and it, it's it's possibly because of the amount of British people who are involved in the production of it, yeah. rather mm. than, the, from, than the Americans. You know, so well, it is also like very disinterested. It's only interest in the Cold War is how it affects Roger Thornhill. Like it's like and and it is like it's interesting that it uses the United Nations building, which had been shot sort of around which had only been finished sort of shortly before that point as like and it's generally seen as an embodiment of post-war optimism it's the idea that we're never going to let something like this happen again because we're going to actually build a community of nations that will actually do something and will ensure that kind of that order is maintained and installed and and the fact that it means absolutely nothing you're going to have like townsend assassinated within it like there is that sense of like chaos and disorganization about it and the fact that you never find out what's on the microfilm, you never find out how the microfilm got into the statue, you never find out like what the what the real stakes are, what the game is beyond how it affects these individual characters. Like even Thornhill's just, objection is not ideological. Thornhill's objection is that Eve is getting drawn into it. Eve yeah. is being forced to play the play a role of a spy in the same way he had been forced to play the role of Kendall, who is literally an empty suit. And, and I like that like he's confused with a character who doesn't exist. It's not like he's confused with somebody who's actually there. He's confused with this person who, who doesn't exist, who nobody's ever seen, and they just presume must look like him, even though the suits in the wardrobe don't fit. Like the fact that he steps into this life he that is his dandruff. He doesn't have dandruff. But the fact yeah, that he steps into this, this life this, yeah they, you ask you, you ask him kind of like um, oh you're using head and shoulders you don't have to end up but like the fact that this thing exists and it creates a life so real that there's dandruff on a comb in the bathroom there are suits that are sent down to press that it's all so fake and elaborate and it doesn't make any sense that you can just have this guy step into the role and be assumed to be this spy because he happens to be going into the room he's coming in at the right time and he looks like the sort of guy who might be a spy i don't know like you have the fact that the cold war impacts these individual lives in such chaotic ways and I think I think that's what it's saying about the Cold War. I think that's like that's its Cold War politics. It's not particularly invested in the conflict. It's just in, invested in the idea that like little people get sort of crushed in the middle of it. And that's why you have those long shots of him like running to the taxi outside the UN, or even when he's standing in the field. You make him look small. You make him look tiny and insignificant because he kind of is. But also yeah. that it's that it's a, that the entire 
espionage side of the Cold War is uh, is chess. It's, it's game. Yeah. The, the, well, that's the, it. Yeah, the, you were the, the guy is the, the the guy is a professor. Or he he he's called a professor. I say he probably is a professor. He's probably a professor of something like game theory or something along those lines. And the that committee that you see meet, who are discussing yeah. the this person that they've made up, they're doing it in such a way as to as to game against the opposition. Yeah. I think it seems like more of British perspective on the Cold War, where it's a kind of like a, a, a well, we don't like, get to play. Where um. no, where 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 it's a kind of a sport and like a battle of wits and ingenuity rather than kind of because because both sides are just kind of going for a win. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't really have any stakes other than than who wins and who loses. Where where it's like presumably they want this thing. So if we if we frustrate them from getting this thing that then we don't have, know what it is, that's our then win. we've won and they've lost. Yeah. And it doesn't where, matter what the game is or exactly. what the rules are yeah. or what we're fighting over. It's just a sport. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, cool. I guess the only thing left to do then is to pick the movie that we're gonna talk about next week. And with that then we will defer to Nile. Random number generator. Yeah. Twist, twist, twist. It goes to 16. So Ooh. nice and high. To be fair, that's the highest one that we've done. The Even discounting stuff like when we did... Uh, a Wonderful Life. It's A Wonderful Life, which is 24. So number 16 is... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which is quite a good one, as one might expect for the 16th <laughs> best movie of all time. So we'll be talking about that next week. We'll just take a quick look at the uh, at the trailer. Why do you think they might think that? They don't make a bit of sense to me. Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. God almighty, she's got you guys coming or going. Change never hurt, huh? Little variety. Ah, oh, come on! You're not gonna say that now. You're not gonna say that now. You're gonna pull that hen house now. When the vote the chief just voted, it was ten to nine. I want that television set turned on right now. I don't think he's overly psychotic. No, I want something. Too. I think he's dangerous. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. Hey, wait a minute. Ah, hold it! See how easy it is? We're from the, uh... State mental institution. Uh, this is Dr. Cheswick, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Scanlon. I'm Dr. McMurphy. Hey, Mikey! What? All right, take him over! Get out over here! Get up, Tate! <laughs> How about it, you creep, you lunatics, mental defective? <laughs> Thank you, Mac. Thank you. I'll never forget you.
so weird. Yeah, trailers were weird back then. <laughs> trailers were. It, lo- it, lo- it looks like that. Um, we had, I don't know if it was it in the show notes for um, for uh, The Shining, but where they recut The Shining <laughs> to make it seem like, like a happy a movie, happy kind of like quirky romantic uh, family comedy, um, and and the the, the um, yeah, this looks like a different kind of a movie where where yeah, where it's this kind of. Um, <laughs> jaunty sort of like enriching sort of like Life screwball yeah, yeah. Screw- yeah. It's like this and then ordinary and- people <laughs> yeah. the thing is like no Nurse <laughs> Ratched is barely in it and, and she seems like like she, she seems like a minor bureaucratic obstacle as opposed to the character she turns out to be because we've all seen the film I'm assuming yes yeah <laughs> um, yeah it, it's, it's something it's a very interesting trailer yeah, the the um yes, it's uh, and 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 it has uh, it has a curse word in it, um, and that curse word is bleep. Yeah, just so we're clear on that. Um, all right then, so we'll be talking about that next week. Um, uh, but in the meantime, Niall, yeah, uh, where can we find you online? You can find me at Niall X Murphy on Twitter or at anywhere at that skin on is, which is all of social media. <laughs> cool. Um, and you've also launching. Uh, uh, yeah, this week the new magazine Sin Air, and yeah, so Sin, yeah, so that will be uh, available to download. Perfect. It's available digitally, isn't yes, it? Yes, on cine.ie. Perfect, and we'll make sure to include those details um, in the show notes. All right, then, with that in mind, then, you can find myself at Darren underscore Mooney. You can find Andrew at... A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. Still don't know why. <laughs> it's, it's basic, it, it is a copy account for... The 250. For the 250, yeah. yeah. Uh, which you can follow at, at the 250. Um, you can also... Uh, if you follow me, I'll probably follow you back. <laughs> find us on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever good podcasts are available. Actually, I shouldn't say that. No people will follow me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll attract the wrong sort of audience, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, take it easy. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.